If you open uh, your Bibles again at Luke 24, and our focus on the passage is verses 25 to 27. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, what we're doing uh, these Sundays, we're looking at some of the aspects that go to make a healthy church. We're looking at what uh, God uses when he revitalizes a church, brings it from embers to a flame. And we've been looking at uh, the importance of preaching. And this is the, the last of that series in preaching. And we're going to be looking this morning at getting the big picture from the Bible. And it so happens that last Sunday, two very different people in different situations uh, commented on how they were becoming excited about seeing the big picture, seeing that the Bible is connected. And that really encouraged me, although they, they were in different contexts, because they weren't really pros in Bible study. And there was something of that thrill that comes when you're beginning to, to get it, that the Bible is a, a unitary message. You see, the Bible is a historical book. And so when we say that the Bible is one story, we're saying that history has purpose. It has meaning. It's the unfolding of God's purposes in the world. That's a huge thing to say. Because a lot of people don't like the idea that history has meaning, that history is moving in any direction. Uh, people who are allergic to that idea will perhaps point to the Nazis who saw history as the unfolding of the destiny of the Aryan race. Or the communists who believed in a struggle between worker and employer resulting in the liberation of the working classes in a utopia. And they say it's dangerous to think of history having a meaning. History is no meaning. Even evolution uh, doesn't have a meaning. Things are evolving just because there's enough time and chance. You mustn't invest history with any significance. That's what so many are saying to us in our day. And the, the fruit of that kind of thinking is obvious because if history does not have a meaning, then life doesn't have a meaning. My life has no meaning. Your life has no meaning. And if my life has no meaning, then is it any wonder that we see uh, suicide and, and euthanasia being embraced? Because if life doesn't have a meaning, then there's no purpose after life either. The Bible challenges all of this and tells us that there is a, a divine hand at the tiller of history. That history is his story. That it's moving forward. It's not a cycle like so much Eastern religion thinks of history, but it's going forward to a glorious destination. And the Bible, being the record of this history, is a, a rational 
and a progressive account of what God is doing purposefully in his world. So this is exciting stuff, and I want to show you why uh, you need to see the big picture when the word has been preached or read. And then we're going to identify what the the main storyline is, and then we're going to look at some of the the, the themes that run through that storyline and act like sinews in a body, binding it together, giving it cohesion. Why we need to have a grasp of the big picture in the Bible. In our story from Luke 24, there are two unnamed disciples and they're walking from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. Uh, one, uh, one is called Cleopas and the other one is Amen. <coughs> and it's funny, we always assume that they're two men. But it's quite possible that the other one was a woman and possibly the wife of Cleopas. Because when you go to uh, John 19, we read that at the foot of the cross, uh, there, were, there along with other women was Mary, wife of Clopas, with the other women. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, for this man and his wife to be walking together after the events of Jerusalem. And they're walking together and they're really depressed and they're discouraged. Because things have not worked out the way they expected them to work out. They are disillusioned by the way events have turned out. They had looked to Jesus and they had seen him as someone who would fulfill their expectations of a military political leader. And the the entrance uh, to the acclaim of, of the crowds to Jerusalem would have ramped that expectation up. And then what happened? He was betrayed by one of his own, handed over to the religious leaders, and he was executed as a criminal. And you can feel their disappointment, but we had hoped that he would have been the one to have redeemed people Israel. We'd hoped, but we were deluded. And then Jesus comes in with a rebuke for not getting the big picture. He says, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Jesus gives them a lesson in the big picture of the Bible. Would it be wonderful to have been there, to have been eavesdropping in that? What would we not have given to have the Lord himself unlocking the scripture, showing how all the scriptures testifies to him. Moses and the prophet is a kind of shorthand for saying all the Bible. So it's not just what we call the the messianic prophecies, the ones that are kind of obvious, you know, that point to Jesus. But the whole fabric, the whole structure of the Bible is, is looking to Jesus, preparing the way, anticipating Jesus. And he says, we should have got it. Now, there are three things that follow uh, from what Jesus says, which remind us that we need to get the big picture. And the first is, you wouldn't know the Bible as good news, as specifically good news, unless you get the big story. Until the penny dropped for these two disciples, there was a disconnect between the Jesus of history they had come to know, and we could say 
the New Testament account, and the Old Testament scriptures. They've been reading the Old Testament apart from the Word now revealed in Jesus, what we have in our New Testament. And because they hadn't combined the two, they had this expectation of a political leader, a revolutionary figure, a national hero. And so, surprise, surprise, when it didn't happen this way, they were deflated, they were discouraged. We need a whole Bible to tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. What kind of impact would it have had, I wonder, on these two disciples if, uh, instead of encountering the Lord who took them through the Bible, they had come uh, head-on with a a 21st century-style happy evangelist who gave them a a little tract and told them, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and then gave them the four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws, fine in their place, but don't scratch the surface. They wouldn't have uh, had an appreciation of the, the good news of the gospel. We need to uh, have a whole Bible to bring the good news to people. Uh, We need to present the gospel through the Old and the New Testament. And when we don't do that, and when we resort to uh, superficial evangelism, then over time the world begins to think that the church is superficial, and her message is superficial. Turn to Acts 10, 42 and 43. We were in Acts 10 uh, last Sunday, and uh, we were looking at Peter at Cornelius' house. And Peter is giving, a, he's giving the message of the good news to the congregation who have gathered, self-consciously to hear all that the Lord has told, has commanded Peter Uh, to say. And Peter says this, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's really interesting. And the reason that it's really interesting is that Peter is saying the, the Lord has told us, the prophets, the New Testament prophets, to tell everyone Jesus is judge. And he's the one about whom the Old Testament says that if you believe in him, you'll find forgiveness in his name. Now that is reversing our attitude towards the Old and the New Testament. We think that the New Testament is all about forgiveness, and the Old Testament is all about judgment. And Peter says it's the other way around, actually. You find forgiveness and good news in the Old Testament, and you'll, you'll learn that Jesus is the judge in the New you need a whole Bible to present good news to people who are in darkness. The Gospels in the Old Testament, it's laying the foundations for all that the New will say. The Old Testament says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll find forgiveness in his name. The New Testament is telling you, Jesus is the Lord, and he'll come as judge. And you better be ready for his coming. We need a whole Bible for good news. Second, we don't understand the old without the new. We can't understand the new without the old. Jesus is the key to both. So these disciples are struggling on the way to Emmaus. 
because they have not uh, allowed the Old Testament to interpret uh, their relationship with Jesus and their expectations of Jesus. And so Jesus has to go patiently back with them and show them all that the Old Testament was telling them about what the Messiah would be like. That he would be a suffering servant. That he would give his life for many. He wasn't this great macho political leader. And then if you think of another encounter, think of the the Ethiopian who has come, he's on his way back home from worshipping in Jerusalem, and he's reading the Bible, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, and he's not getting it, and the reason he's not getting it is that he needs the new to interpret the old. Philip uh, comes alongside him, uh, discovers that he's puzzled. He's reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And Philip steps up to the chariot and asks him, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, How can I unless someone explain it? Is the writer speaking about himself? or about someone else. He hasn't got, you see, that the Old Testament's all about Jesus. And so Philip begins to explain to him the gospel from the Old Testament, using Jesus as a key. We need the new to interpret the old, and the old to interpret the new. And then, thirdly, we won't have this thrill, this our experience of our hearts being warmed because there is a purposefulness to the whole of history, the whole of biblical history, unless we see this big picture. Jesus says uh, to the disciples, uh, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? We, we have to make the connections between old and new, uh, not only because it, it thrills our hearts, expands our minds, but because if we don't do, we will build very superficially. Uh, you will just boil down sections of the Bible and end up preaching little moralistic sermons. Uh, you, they will be free-floating, will be disconnected with the rest of the Bible. Uh, you'll have churches that will be built on just a part of the Bible without seeing the, the whole flow of the Bible, the big picture together. And unless you get the big picture, you're not going to be excited about the Bible in a way that every believer should be excited about the Bible. I, I remember the time when, you know, after being a Christian for many years, and when I was studying in Westminster, it was like just the, the, the light went on and I could see... This is wonderful. The, the whole of the Bible is all about the Savior. It's in the very fabric of the Bible. It's woven into its, its, uh, its, its material. Thrilling experience. And that's what I want for everyone in Hope Church, that we will have individually what went on in the hearts of the two disciples when Jesus explained the Bible to them. Their hearts were warm. They got it. The lights went on. Fire. Excitement. That's what the Word does when we grasp the whole picture. The Bible is all His story.
what's the storyline. The Bible is like a, a stick of seaside rock. You know the, the rock that you get, uh, which is kind of uh, wrapped up in cellophane, and you peel back the cellophane, revealing more and more of the rock. The Bible is an unfolding story. There's an unfolding story, there's a progression <coughs> through it. It's not all kind of revealed at one time, we have to pull back the cellophane. And the storyline can go, at its simplest level, it goes at creation, fall, redemption, new creation. You can't really boil it down more simply than that. But you can add bits to it. Uh, it can go at creation, fall, election and promise. Captivity, kingdom, exile, advent of Christ, apostolic feast, church, new heavens and new earth. But however we do it, there's a basic storyline that history is going uh, in a direction and there are these eras in which God is working in specific ways. And there's this ultimate purpose in the storyline. And we find that ultimate purpose in Ephesians 1. His purpose is to unite all things in him, Christ, things in heaven and in earth, to the praise of his glory. What's, what's history doing? Where is history going? History is going to that point where Christ will be exalted as head over all to the glory of God. All that God does, he does for his glory. That is the chief end of God in everything that he does, his glory. And his purpose is to be glorified in Christ, in whom all things will come together. And that stick of rock is unfolded. The cellophane is unwrapped to reveal this progressive uh, storyline. But you remember, in the stick of rock, uh, you also got a wee bit of writing, and the writing went right through the middle of the rock. Yeah? So, where, wherever you bit off, you had the same writing going right through. Whether it was Scarborough, or whatever it was, Danoon, or whatever it was, in the rock. And there are these themes which go through the storyline of the Bible, and they connect everything together. And Jesus appears to us in different ways. He's presented to us in different ways through these themes that go like the writing in the rock through the whole. Now we're going to have just a really quick bird's eye view of some of them just to whet our appetite, to stir up our, our, our hearts, to see something of the, the beauty and the wisdom of the scriptures. Some of the themes that progressively reveal the Lord and his glory. God is the creator. That's a theme that runs like writing through the rock. God is the creator God. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, the creeds go. God is Trinity, has always existed in the blessed fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But out of the overflow of his goodness, God creates. He creates a perfect environment 
And he places man and woman in this perfect environment, in his creation, which he has declared good. And for a time they enjoy this fellowship with the Creator, but sin spoils it. And it not only brings a new dysfunctional uh, nature to man, but the creation itself is affected by sin. So the environment in which we live uh, is tainted, it's spoiled. It's an insight the unbeliever doesn't have, but it's so true. And because of this breakdown in, in God's created goodness, man is always going to rebel, he's always going to mess up, but God is merciful. He has a plan to restore his creation. And he prepares the way carefully for the time when he'll renew his earth. And he settles his people in Canaan. And in fact, it's a glimpse into what the new heaven and the earth will be like in the way that he orders the land. Sin leads to exile. Then the creator God steps down into his own world and with acts of power overcomes disease, demons, death, signals the way into a new creation. And through the gospel, through the power of the gospel, there is substantial healing in a broken world. Substantial healing, not complete healing, because the complete healing comes with the new heaven and the new earth, but there is substantial healing through the gospel in God's world. And the creation, Paul tells us, is groaning towards that day when the Lord coming again will renew the creation. Now, when we see that God has created all things to be good and has made us in his image, then we can have a positive attitude towards the world and towards culture. God made them good. But on the other hand, when we appreciate how broken things are, then we see how sin has defaced uh, man and his environment, then we have realistic expectations. We should never put our leaders on a pedestal because they are sinners like we are. God is the creator. God is a holy God. And again, the theme of holiness is running through the stick of rock, through the storyline of the Bible. God is set apart from all that is morally wrong. He cannot be indifferent to evil. Not even evil that we think of as cute or pleasurable. He must judge it. He's passionate for the truth. You see, in Genesis, when things are pronounced good, God is perfect friendship with the pinnacle of his creation, man. Uh, and interestingly, the friendship is within an enclosed garden or you know, a little uh, cultivated place, uh, literally a paradise that will be represented later by the tabernacle and by the temple. And when Adam and Eve sin, they must be separated from his holy God. They are banished from his presence. And God's holiness requires that there be a penalty uh, for sin. There can be no communion until sin has been dealt with. And we're given an idea of this all through the Old Testament. Uh, there's the idea of atonement, of blood being shed in order that uh, the, the penalty of sin uh, be shown. And then there are the ceremonial laws. You, know, you, you don't get the ceremonial laws until you get the big picture. What is it with this idea that you shouldn't wear jackets of two different materials or sow your seed, two different kinds of seed in the garden? 
What's going on there? What is it with not eating, uh, you know, prawns and and uh, and pigs and this kind of thing? Some groups of animals and fish that don't comply with the, the rules that go with a greater whole or genre. What's going on there? This is happy hunting ground for unbelievers who, who mock the Bible. And what's going on here is that God is telling his people com- uh, uh, continually that cleanness is important, that uh, sin defiles, that purity is important, and that impurity keeps us from God. And then Jesus comes and brings a lasting solution to the problem of uncleanness. And he does that by living as the only one perfectly clean, and by going onto the cross and being made unclean for us and bearing the sin of uncleanness or unholiness. And by faith in him we become clean, and we become acceptable before God, and we're enabled to enter his presence. Christ becomes the new temple for us, the place where we meet and commune with God, clean people, cleansed by his blood. God's holiness is close to another theme, the fact that he's father. Adam's created a son, uh, locus s. He is uh, the son of God. Adam and Eve rebel. They're sent into the far country. They are out of the family. There's a family breakdown. When Moses is told to go and confront Pharaoh, the message that Moses is given is, Israel is my firstborn. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may worship me. God seeking his son, the lost son. Jesus comes into the world, the son of God, and gives us this, this parable that explains all that God is doing. A parable about two sons that are estranged from their father. And one of them has gone away into a far-off land and he's living obviously like a rebel. And the other one is still at home and he's slavishly trying to earn acceptance. And they're both lost. And Jesus tells us that's why I've come, to bring the lost into the family. God is a seeking father. God is king. The theme of kingdom runs right through the Bible, like this lettering in the rock. God is Adam's friend, but God is Adam's king. Adam and Eve must obey God. And when they don't, they're expelled. And when God's people are put into Egypt, we have a clash of kings. There's the king of heaven and earth, and there's this... uh, king over a petty kingdom called Egypt, and there can be only one winner. David is the ideal king. He is a man after God's heart. In his victories, he becomes a a prototype for the king who will come. The Messiah who's promised will be of David's line. Every king that's placed on the throne of Israel, the people wonder, is this the one? Is Is he the one who will lead us? And when the time had fully come, Jesus arrives announcing the kingdom of God at hand and he teaches the laws of the kingdom and eventually he dies on a cross and they mock him and they place a crown of thorns on his head. He dies as the king of the Jews. But he comes as the victorious king. He defeats Satan. He breaks the chains that bound him in death. He gathers his people and he sends them as the conquered king with a commission to bring in kingdoms of this world into the rule of God. His kingdom will have no end. One day he will return and every knee will bow 
And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is King. And as a king, lastly, he makes covenants. Kings made covenants with people. And covenant is one of these words that runs again through the rock uh, from beginning to end. God made a covenant with Adam. God made a covenant with creation in Noah's time. He made a covenant with Abraham and with David. God says continually to the people, keep my law and you will be blessed. Disobey and you will die. You will come under this curse. And Jesus comes. He comes with the new covenant which is the old covenant fulfilled. He keeps every iota of the law and bears the curse of the covenant on the cross and gives us signs and seals assuring us that all is right with us because of him. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. He gives us baptism as a sign and seal of his victory and of membership in his covenant family. That's why we need the whole Bible. There's a the saying, I'm sure you know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a whole Bible to raise a, a Christian. To be solid believers, we need the whole Bible. We need the Old Testament. We need the New. We need to see the big picture. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we bless and praise you for the fact that uh, you reveal your wisdom to us through it, that it is one story. And we bless you that Jesus is the one to whom history is pointing. May he be uh, over all of our lives, today and always, the one that we cherish. May our lives point to him. May our lives be winsome for him, that others may see him in us and want to know him. We pray in Jesus' name. Now we're going to uh, close with uh, the Getty Town and him by faith. <coughs> by faith we see the hand of God and the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice
Thank you. 